everyone, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're going to be continuing on our Manchester tapes. We're going to be talking about Joy Division. I just want to put it out there first as a warning. If you are sensitive to talks about suicide, I would highly suggest that you don't listen to this episode because it's going to be sprinkled throughout the whole episode. Yeah, if that's not something that you think you want to listen to, I completely understand. So if you want to listen to the other podcasts, feel free. But this one, you probably might want to skip if that's something that you think you don't want to listen to. I just wanted to put that warning out there before I actually started the episode, because obviously if you don't want to listen to that, you don't have to listen to that. But without further ado, I'm going to jump right ahead and talk about frontman and singer Ian Curtis. So Ian was born July 15, 1956 in Stretford, Lancashire. He grew up in a working class family in Macclesfield, Cheshire. His parents, Kevin and Doreen, immigrated from Ireland to have a new life in Manchester. So he's again one of these families of Irish immigrants that came over into Manchester for new opportunities, better opportunities for their family. I I think there's been not one Manchester band that I've talked about so far where their parents haven't been Irish immigrants. I think that's pretty straightforward across the board. It's been said that Ian was a really intelligent child. He loved books a lot and he loved poetry. He kind of kept to himself. He was very quiet, very sweet. He was awarded a scholarship at age 11 at Macclesfield Independent King's School. At school, though, he grew to have a strong interest in philosophy, literature, and poets like Tom Gunn. He was incredibly smart and he is a very, very smart person. He was awarded a lot of scholastic awards at ages 15 and 16 for his academic abilities at school. It's kind of funny that while at school, he had these really great grades and his teachers loved him. He was just so book smart and so literate. It was just kind of a breeze for him, really. The opposite side of the coin is while he was at school, he was part of this social service program where he would go around town and visit the elderly. On a lot of these occasions, going around visiting the elderly, he would go into their medicine cabinets and he would take any drugs of theirs that he would see because him and his friends would like go around to either one of their houses or they would go to a park, just somewhere isolated, and they would get high on these drugs together. So, I mean, that's not really the greatest thing when you're going around helping the elderly and you take their medicine. They must be looking at their medicine cabinet like, huh, my prescriptions seem a little light. (laughs) What's happening here? It's just, it's kind of sad that that was something that he was interested in doing. I guess he was bored and just wanted to try these drugs and get high with his friends. It got really, really bad though, to the point where one time he would overdose at age 16 on these medications that he would find randomly. He was in his room and his father happened to find him unconscious that night. They had to take him to Macclesfield Hospital where he had his stomach pumped. So that's just kind of the juxtaposition of Ian Curtis, a star pupil at school and then a little uh, delinquent outside of school. One year after he graduated from school, his family bought a home from a relative in New Moston, and so they lived there for some period of time. Ian, throughout a lot of his life, early childhood, had a really keen interest in music. He was obsessed with artists like Jim Morrison, 
Iggy Pop, The Velvet Underground, and David Bowie in particular. All of them would go on to greatly influence his poetry, and so this is a thing that would go on throughout all of Ian's life. He was a poet, I think, first and foremost. He had like a big journal of poems that he would just write things down in. It makes sense. He was so keen on literature and so keen on poetry. Very similar to Morrissey, where they were both loving literature and they both, their lyrics, both of them, while very different, they both have quite a poetic, a poetic kind of vibe about their lyrics. And so that's kind of a cool little connection that both of them really liked poetry. It's not every day I think that you find a musician or a lyricist that is genuinely a true poet. They actually can play with words really well. His earliest influences on music was a church choir as a kid in Macclesfield. Because he didn't have the money to actually buy any records, though, he would often steal from the record shops, so I'm sure he amassed quite a big record collection. As he grew up into his teen years, he gained a reputation amongst his friends as being a strong-willed person with a really keen eye for fashion. After studying at St. John's College, he became bored with academic life and he wasn't interested in it anymore. Instead, though, he was really committed to finding himself a job instead. But while he was looking for a job and while he was bored of academic life, he did continue to pursue his interests in art and literature and music. One of his first jobs was at a record store in Manchester City Center before getting a more stable job in the civil service. So while working at this job, he often worked in, oh, you guys, I'm not, I'm not going to pronounce this one right, so just bear with me, Cheadle Hume. That is a city around Manchester where he spent several months working with the Ministry of Defense before he was offered another job with the Manpower Services Commission at Piccadilly Gardens. He also worked as a civil servant in Woodford, but he requested to be transferred to Macclesfield Employment Exchange instead, where he worked as an assistant disablement resettlement officer. On August 23, 1975, he married his girlfriend Deborah Woodruff. The two were previously introduced by a friend of Ian's, well actually a mutual friend. She was dating one of his friends and they just happened to form a bond in between that time. So they met in 1972 when they both started dating at 16. They got married in Cheshire when Ian was only 19 and Deborah was 18, so they married very young. At first, when they started dating, they lived with Ian's grandparents, but after getting married, they moved to Chatterton. Not long after this move, they were starting to not really like their life in Oldham and they remortgaged their house. In May 1977, they moved into their own house on Barton Street in Macclesfield, this would go on to be the infamous Ian Curtis house. I'll mention that kind of later towards the end of the episode with what's going on with his house right now as of currently. But this is where him and his wife Deborah would live. One room in the house was dedicated as a songwriting room for Ian, so he had his own little space. It was around this time in 1978 that Ian began to have epileptic seizures. And this would be a strong point for his depression throughout the rest of his life. These seizures were getting worse and worse and worse as the years went on. It became such a terrible thing for him to endure all the time. He was officially diagnosed in January 1979. 
The doctors pointed out that his epilepsy was so severe that his life would be ruled by it without very, very, very strong medication to help him survive. So this would be an ongoing battle that Ian would face. He initially joined the British Epilepsy Association as a way to openly discuss his condition with others, which is a nice step forward, but eventually he wanted to withdraw from it. And he wouldn't talk about his epilepsy in depth at all, except for the little mundane sort of everyday things that he had to talk about it. So he really shied away from talking about it. He didn't want to bring it up. This was something that he was really ashamed about that he had. Each time he had a seizure, it became apparent that he wasn't on the best medication for him to take. So his doctor switched to an anticonvulsant medication. Deborah noted that after this switch to the anticonvulsant, Ian was more lively and he had renewed enthusiasm. Excited that this new concoction would help his condition, unfortunately this wouldn't last very long because his seizures started to get worse and worse. And together they had a daughter, Natalie, and she was born April 16th, 1979. So that is the backstory of Ian Curtis. Now let's kind of move on to when Joy Division would form. On June the 4th, 1976, school friends Bernard Sumner and Peter Hook went to a Sex Pistols concert, which is their most famous concerts that they ever put on in Manchester at the Lesser Free Trade Hall. This day in particular, I'm telling you, so many kids went to this show and so many of them formed famous bands because of this show in particular. And that's what we're going to see right here. Seeing the Sex Pistols at this concert in particular inspired them to start a band. Ian Curtis was also at this show, but they didn't really hook up right away. Bernard said that the Sex Pistols destroyed the myth of being a pop star, of a musician being some kind of god that you had to worship. The next day after the concert, Peter borrowed 35 pounds from his mom to buy a bass guitar, and together they formed a band alongside their friend Terry Mason, who also went to this Pistol show. So they, they genuinely did not know how to play any instruments. They were simply just so enthused by the Sex Pistols that they went out and they bought instruments and they taught themselves how to play. That was kind of really how it started. Bernard also bought himself a guitar and Terry bought himself a drum kit. So the three of them kind of started with their own band and they were looking for a singer at the time. They had the idea of one of their school friends, Martin, to be the vocalist, but he declined. So the three of them decided that they were going to put out ads for a singer in the Manchester Virgin record shop. Ian saw the ad and he responded right away. He actually knew the guys from school. They were all kind of schoolmates. Ian told the boys that he was also interested in forming a band, so they all joined forces. They all came together. Ian was hired without any audition. They just brought him in. They said, yeah, we know you. You're cool. So they just brought him in right away. Richard Boone, who was the manager of the Buzzcocks, and their singer Peter Shelley claimed that they suggested to the band that they named themselves Stiff Kittens, which is strange, but eventually they settled on being called Warsaw before their first show, which was a reference to the David Bowie song, Warzawa, which I don't think I even said that correctly. So the Buzzcocks was also a big inspiration to all four of the members of Joy Division. Richard Boone kind of became, not necessarily their manager, but he helped them 
um, come together and he helped them with gigs and promotion and things like that. But he wasn't really their full-time manager. He was just kind of around to help them. They put on their first show as Warsaw on May 29th, 1977 at the Electric Circus, being the supporting act for the Buscocks, Penetration, and Joy Cooper Clark. This show in particular helped them get noticed by Sounds Magazine and NME Magazines, which are music publications. They reviewed the band and their performance that night, which helped give them a boost in mainstream exposure. Terry briefly became the band's manager after struggling with his drum playing, so he became their official manager at that point. In June, they brought on Steve Brotherdale for the role of drums, who played in the punk band The Panic. So as this lineup, they recorded a five-track demo tape at Pen9 Studios in Oldham. They were all disappointed that Steve had quite an aggressive personality, so they let him go. There was one point in time where after a show, they drove home, and on the ride home, there was a little bit of an altercation going on between Ian and one of the boys. It led to Ian having a really big seizure in the car. They had to pull over, they had to take him out and let him cool down, and this was kind of, I think, the turning point for the band where they really saw these seizures firsthand and they understood that this was really serious and this could happen at any time. So that kind of scared them, to be honest. So later on, after this point, the band put an ad in a music shop window looking for a replacement drummer. And this is when they brought on Stephen Morris, who also went to school with Ian. So they were all schoolmates and they all came together in this way, which is really cool. He was the only one, actually, that responded to this ad that they put out. So that makes it so much easier. He was one and done. That was it. At some point, the band did change their name from Warsaw because they didn't want to be confused with another band at the time called Warsaw Pact. The band officially changed their name to Joy Division in 1978. So the story about where Joy Division comes from is a bit bleak. I don't want to mention this topic at all, but because it comes from the backstory of Joy Division, I'm going to talk about it briefly. The name Joy Division, I had no idea that this was actually where the name came from, but the name Joy Division came from a 1995 novel called The House of Dolls, which is a non-fiction book that detailed the history of Jewish women in the World War II concentration camps, joy divisions at these concentration camps that were sexual slavery sectors in the camp. So at this time when they changed their name, they caught the attention of music producer Tony Wilson and manager Rob Gredden at a show in Manchester's Rafters Club on April 14, 1978. They had seen Tony Wilson around Manchester and because they were putting on shows all the time, they were trying to get their name out there. Ian was really upset that Tony hadn't put the band on his TV show called So It Goes, which was a TV program at the time from Manchester's Granada Television that showcased up and coming punk bands in Manchester. The story goes that Ian walked over to Tony Wilson while he was just chatting with some friends and Ian was like, how dare you not put our band on this program? What is wrong with you? Like he was, <laughs> he really put him in the hot seat. And Tony responded to him that Joy Division would be the next band that he would showcase on the TV show, which that was to happen. Rob, though, was very impressed with their performance that night at the Rafters Club. 
that he asked the band if he could be their manager. Obviously, at the time, Terry was there kind of part-time, or if you will, I don't know if you want to call it part-time, but he was their manager for a time. Uh, but then Rob was brought on as their official manager. It's been said that Rob was credited for much of the band's public success and contributed to their business skills that helped propel the band forward creatively to where they could have open range, no holds barred, they could be as creative as they wanted with their music, so that really helped them a lot. They spent most of May 1978 recording new material at Manchester's Arrow Studios, unhappy that they were being pressured by one of the studio heads to put synthesizers over the mix to soften up the music, the band requested that their contract with RCA be cancelled immediately. Because yeah, they didn't want that kind of sound at all. They were a punk band or a post-punk band, and they didn't want that synth over there to soften the music. They were not about that. This is where, in December of 1978, they recorded their first EP called An Ideal for Living. It was recorded at Pen9 Studios, and this was a self-funded project by the band, costing them 400 pounds to record. Honestly, 400 pounds well spent. They definitely let their punk sounds showcase throughout the EP. I have to say, I re-listened to it last night. I'm surprised that I knew the song Warsaw. I had known that song for most of my life, not knowing it was Joy Division, because let's be honest, when you listen to that EP, that is a classic sounding punk album. 100%. That is so classically punk sounding. Joy Division's actual studio albums don't sound like that. The sound is very expansive. It's very experimental. It's very different. I would say the EP sounds a lot like how they sounded at these concerts and in person than comparing it to their studio albums, which was a very different sound that I'll get into a little bit later. But yeah, I mean, I'm very surprised that I knew that song Warsaw on the EP. I knew that song all my life. I think that was featured on one of Tony Hawk's video games that I played as a kid. I'm not sure which one, but I, I know it was in one of those. But yeah, they definitely really had that punk sound down to a T. They knew what they were doing. The EP was followed by their song called At a Later Date, and this was featured on the compilation album Short Circuit Live at the Electric Circus. And so the cover of the EP was actually drawn by Bernard, like the, the script that said Joy Division on it, and the drawing that was on it, he did that whole entire thing. He did the whole concept for that. The concept of that was a drawing of a Hitler youth banging a drum. When the EP was released on a 12-inch vinyl, they did change the album cover to a photograph of scaffolding to avoid controversy that they were Nazi sympathizers. Peter and Bernard said later, at the time that they were intrigued by fascism, but at the same time, they did not want to be associated by it. Stephen believes that them using Nazi imagery came out of a desire to keep the memories of the sacrifices of the parents and grandparents during World War II alive. He also said that the hate that they got for doing this only fueled them even more to keep doing it. So they just didn't really care. I mean, they knew that they were good people, that they were not Nazi sympathizers, and that they were just putting out there what they wanted to put out there. This EP also would go on to inspire the Manic Street Preacher song, A Design for Life. They played their final show as Warsaw on New Year's Eve at the Swinging Apple in Liverpool. 
their next show, they wanted to make sure that they were put on the bill as Warsaw, but they actually played the show as Joy Division just because they wanted to ensure that they would get a good crowd going on. On January 25th, 1979 at Pips Disco Club in Manchester. So now we're going to move on to some of their early work before they recorded their first album. In September 1978, they made their first television appearance performing their song Shadowplay and So It Goes with an introduction by Tony Wilson to the program. So Tony was good on his word and they actually appeared on his show. In October, they contributed two songs with producer Martin Hannett on the compilation Double 7-Inch EP, A Factory Sample. This was the first release on Tony Wilson's newly found record label, Factory Records. So this was huge. Factory Records is a huge stepping stone of Manchester's music scene, and Joy Division was the first major band, well not major at the time, but looking back in hindsight, the first major band to be signed with Factory Records and for Tony Wilson to put a lot of his musical ambitions towards. So Joy Division became the first one on their label after they bought themselves out of RCA Records. Tony explained to them that because Factory Records had a 50-50 split of the profit with the bands, that Joy Division could make just as much money with Factory Records as an indie label than if they went to a major label. So to them, this was really the easiest switch that they could ever do because Factory Records supported them and they got a lot of profit from any releases that they would come out with. And so it was a very easy switch for them. The following year, on January 13th, 1979, Ian appeared on the cover of Enemy magazine, prompting even more media exposure. That's huge. Also in January, they recorded their sessions for the John Peel Radio 1 show. According to Ian's wife, Deborah, at the time between the enemy cover appearance and the Radio 1 show, it became even more realized to her and to the band that Ian's condition would have to be something that they would have to accommodate for because now it was starting to speed up where he would get more seizures every week. Joy Division actually opened for The Cure on March 4th, 1979 at the Marquee Club. Robert Smith chose the band to open for them specifically. Robert's quote on that night and about Ian was, They were the best thing I'd seen. Not ever, because I'd seen Bowie and the Stones. But they were of that generation of bands, which is my generation of bands. They were so powerful. That was our best show that year. I think we went on after them, and we had to really try hard to match what they did. It's a shame about Ian Curtis. It's like Jimi Hendrix or Kurt Cobain. People that good come around far too infrequently. Now we're getting on to the biggest album that was to ever be released by them at this time, but also it is such an iconic album because of the image on the album. Let's dive into Unknown Pleasures. Rob had actually estimated that the cost for recording Unknown Pleasures was 8,000 pounds, but Tony said later that the cost was actually around 18,000 pounds. The album was recorded at Strawberry Studios in Stockport between three weekends in April 1979 with Martin Hannett producing. Martin Hannett was very, very, very well known in the music industry. 
He was very well revered, and so he worked really hard on this album and on their other album that they were to come out with. A number of different production techniques were used in the studio, like using modulators, tape echo, sounds of a bottle smashing, someone eating chips, an aerosol can being sprayed, backwards guitar, and the sound of a speaker inside the studio's elevator making a whirring sound. So he would use all of these elements in the production. He was quite particular with how the mixing and the production went in the studio. He was so particular that he wanted Steven to record his drums separately. Like the different parts of the drums, he wanted him to record different bits. And on the mixing table, he would put them together, which created the really big drum sound that you hear in Unknown Pleasures. Martin actually recorded Ian's voice down a telephone line so he could achieve that perfect distance on the album, and I would definitely say you can hear that for sure. Some of the members disagreed on the outcome on the album as a whole. Their live sound was very loud and definitely a lot more punk and raw, which I had mentioned before, compared to the open atmospheric sound of Unknown Pleasures. So they were not all of the band members, but some of them were conflicted on whether or not this was a genuine thing, whether or not their punk sound was toned down on the album. Bernard thought that Martin definitely had toned down the sound a lot. And Peter commented on his disappointment as well, saying that he couldn't hide how he felt about it. He thought that it sounded like a big booming atmospheric Pink Floyd album, which isn't really a bad thing. But when you're a post-punk band and you want to make a really, really, really good album that represents how you want people to perceive you as in terms of the sound, yeah, I wouldn't say that Pink Floyd would be the first choice. Peter Saville was the one that designed the infamous album cover. He previously designed posters for Manchester's Factory Club in 1978. And so it makes total sense that he would be the one to come up with this extremely iconic, like everyone and their mother <laughs> knows this image. It's so famous. It's unclear whether it was Bernard or Stephen who had actually chosen the image for the cover, but Peter Saville was the one that put it on. It's based on the radio waves from a Pulsar CP 1919. He found it in a book. Saville inverted the image from black on white to white on black. And this was against the wishes of the band. They wanted the image to be left in its original format where it was black on a white background. But Peter thought that because this image represented a signal from space that it should be white on black, that it suited that spacey theme a lot better instead of having it be black on white which I personally think inverting it was a great choice. I don't know if it would have made the same impact necessarily if it was black on white, if they had left it. That is just such an extremely iconic image. It's on everything. You go out to the store, you'll find it on t-shirts, on coffee mugs, on shoes, like everywhere. So the image of this radio wave became associated particularly with the gothic scene in the 80s when New Order eventually were to form. But also, it's become kind of synonymous, I think, with the Nirvana smiley face where I think people don't really know what it's all about, but they just know the image. And it's on, it's on everything, literally. 
again, yeah, it sold on t-shirts and other big brand merchandise. At the time, though, when they were coming out with the album, it was said that Steven, when he first saw the image, he thought, that would look good on a t-shirt. But Rob remarked that, no, we don't do t-shirts. That is a shit idea. <laughs> they actually did put the image out on little badges, but they didn't do anything else. They considered that putting the image on t-shirts and anything more would be selling out. Famously, Disney put the image on a t-shirt and they put Mickey Mouse's face on it. This became such a huge debacle that Disney took the image down off of their website in 2012, only after two days of having it out there, because you know what? Disney can't have everything, okay? Disney is a big conglomerate monopoly, and you know what? No, they can't have everything. But yeah, the band were not happy about that at all. So the album was initially printed at only 10,000 copies. That's just kind of the starting point. With half of that being sold within the first two weeks of the album's release on June 15, 1979, a further 10,000 copies were sold following those six months. So they ran out of the 10,000, they made 10,000 more. Tony Wilson had apparently used his life savings on the pressings of the initial 10,000 copies to be made, which is crazy. That must have been a lot of money to use his life savings for this. I mean, he really was so supportive of the band. He knew that they were extremely big. And that's one of the great things, too, about Joy Division is in its infancy, they had the support and the structure from a lot of people. What they were doing was so different in the late 70s. Honestly, looking back on it, it's crazy that they even came out with that kind of sound because it's so different and so unique for the time. But they were very much so supported by a lot of people in the music industry. And so that's what helped them, I think, with the initial success right off the gate. The sales for the album initially were slow until the release of their single that wasn't featured on the album called Transmission. Once Transmission became a success, the album sales definitely picked up a lot quicker. The album generated 50,000 pounds in profit. She Lost Control became one of their best and well-known songs on the album. The inspiration for that song is based on a time, a real-life situation, when Ian was working at the civil service. He encountered a woman who had epilepsy and she was desperate for a job. Unfortunately, though, at this appointment with Ian, she had a seizure right there in front of him, and this had an extremely profound impact at the time. Recalling that instance from his past, and then at that point in time, recording Unknown Pleasures, having epilepsy himself, it really struck a chord with him. One day after realizing that he hadn't heard from her in some time, he made a phone call and he learned that she had died following a seizure in her sleep. So again, this was just one of those moments in his life where he wanted to write about his feelings and wanted to write about the situations that occurred in his life. And at the time, people weren't really sure what his lyrics meant. They weren't even really inferring that his songs were that deep at the time. The band just kind of were looking over his lyrics and saying, yeah, Ian, these are awesome. Please record these. But it's so obvious that Ian's lyrics, looking back, were a cry for help, definitely. With a lot of the songs he would write, they're, they're from the heart. They're from the soul. They're very poetic. They're very deep. 
um, like the lyrical content is there. It's very prominent. I would honestly maybe say because of Ian's really, really unique voice, sometimes it can be a little hard to hear what he's actually saying sometimes. When you listen to it again or when you look at the lyrics of these songs, it's so obvious that he's writing from the heart. On the song She Lost Control, an electric drum pad was used on the track, and this would go on to be used in their future live shows. Steven also said that the inspiration for that drum beat came from a song like The Ronettes' Be My Baby. It became their most important songs at the time. Like, it just became a really big success. It blew up. Joy Division had toured with the Buzzcocks that November, and this prompted the album sales as well to pick up even more, reaching 15,000 copies being sold at the time. Unfortunately, even though the sales were good and people were really loving the album, it didn't chart on the UK album charts, unfortunately. But following the death of Ian Curtis and the subsequent release of their second album, they did reissue Unknown Pleasures in July of 1980, it did a lot better, though, on the UK indie charts, where it reached number two. Music critics, though, were kind of divided on the album upon its release. Some were comparing them to The Doors and The Velvet Underground with its really deep sound. And I would definitely say Ian's vocals definitely bring about a Jim Morrison type of feel, or a Lou Reed for sure. But I would say I would definitely lean towards Jim Morrison sounding while some of them were also saying that the album was bleak, so music critics were just divided, they weren't really sure what to think about it. They were way ahead of their time for sure. In July 1979, the band performed on Granada television again, and they made their only nationwide TV appearance on BBC's Two Something Else show in September. The success of the album made it so that all of the band members could quit their regular jobs and focus on making music. Another thing I kind of wanted to bring up about Joy Division and how they were so different was how they presented themselves on their shows. They came out not looking like a post-punk or a punk band whatsoever. They had their nice button-down shirts and their slacks and their nice shoes on. They did not look at the time what you would consider a punk band. They had the sound for sure. 100% but they looked like they had just come out of their day jobs and then went on the stage. So that's something that's so unique about them too is they had a very distinct look about them as well as their own unique sound about them which made them stand out. Around this time of Unknown Pleasures being released to Ian's death, Ian's health conditions were starting to take a turn for the worse. He was starting to have more serious seizures, like grand mal seizures at this point in time. This was taking a really big toll on his mental health because he could have a seizure pretty much out of nowhere. Like it doesn't matter what he's doing or what day it is or what time it is or whatever, he could have a seizure right then and there. And with the crumbling of his marriage and these seizures that he would have, it just became a big concoction of despair and depravity for him in his own mind. Some of these shows that he would go on to have, he would have seizures on stage and he had to be carried off stage. He wasn't only having these seizures off stage, he was having them in front of everybody, not all the time, but he would sometimes. Oh, that reminds me, I also wanted to mention as well. It's very well known that Ian's dance moves on stage looked kind of like he was having a seizure. He wasn't having seizures on stage. 
it was just he was feeling the music and that is what his dance moves were. These dance moves of his would be known as the epilepsy dance. And so when you see it on stage, it's very, it's very violent and very aggressive. Um, also a little awkward, which also comes to how just so unique in literally every aspect they were. But a big reason, I think, why his epilepsy was starting to be worse is Ian's mental health was so bad that he would often drink and his smoking and his irregular sleeping habits would exacerbate the side effects of his medication and therefore making him have worse seizures. The pressures of touring and recording as well exacerbated his already underlying anxiety and it made it worse for him with these seizures. It just was it was just a thing that he had to suffer through and deal with. His changing mood swings was I think one of the biggest side effects of his medications. It was noted by his wife and his parents and his in-laws that he would become a lot more reserved and shy and he wouldn't say a whole lot. It's funny because when you actually hear him on, on very rare interviews that he's done, you can actually hear what he sounds like. First of all, he doesn't sound like he does when he's singing because he has a very deep voice when he sings. But people have said that he's a very warm really nice sweet guy like his voice is just really warm and really nice and so at this point in time he became a lot more reclusive a lot more introverted he wouldn't say a whole lot about anything to anybody he would just kind of keep it all inside and not say a whole lot which that's a recipe for disaster right there his seizures became such an issue that he refrained from holding his own daughter in the off chance that when he held her at one point that he would have a fit, but he didn't even want to put himself in that position. So he wouldn't even hold his daughter. I mean, how sad is that? That's what he felt like he needed to do to keep himself and everyone around him safe. With the crumbling of his marriage, it is very well known that he did have an affair around October of 1979 with Belgian journalist Anique Honoré. And they first met at a gig in Brussels where she interviewed the band after the show. Ian was deeply ashamed of this kind of affair. It was infidelity because it was emotional. I mean, he was going to Anique and he loved her and his marriage with Deborah was crumbling for so long because he got married at a young age. And even though he loved Deborah, right? It was just this thing where he thought it was a mistake looking back on his marriage that he shouldn't have gotten married that young. And he met Anique and he loved her. And so he was very conflicted with this. And he was ashamed that he had this affair. He told Deborah that he would leave Anique, but he couldn't. He was unable because he loved her. So because, like I mentioned before, Ian was a lot more um, shy and introverted and reclusive. And he would keep a lot of things inside of him. He went to Anique a lot to talk about his problems and how he feels and he would confide in her a lot about things. I think that's why, in part, he loved her so much because he felt like maybe he couldn't go to Deborah or his parents or his in-laws about certain kinds of things that he was dealing with, and he felt like Anique could be a shoulder for him. And so she became like his rock. So after Unknown Pleasures, they went back into the studio and they started to record their second album, Closer, in March 1980. Ian started getting two grand mal seizures a week at this point in time. It just became so bad. And grand mal seizures are major. Grand mal seizures are no joke. Those could alter your brain chemistry. 
Those could alter your behavior. It could do some brain damage. Like those are serious seizures. During one of these recording sessions for a closer, the band had noticed that Ian was absent for nearly two hours. They eventually found him in the bathroom after having hit his head on the sink during a seizure. He was unconscious on the floor. I mean, oh my God, how horrible is that? One time during a gig held for nearly 3,000 fans at the Rainbow in Finsbury Park in April 1980, unfortunately, the lighting technicians switched over from using their regular lights to using strobe lights. Obviously, strobe lights are known to induce epileptic seizures, even though everyone told these lighting technicians to not use strobe lights. Ian was immediately affected by this, and he had a seizure right there on stage and had to be carried off. It was at this time, after he had recovered, Ian was adamant that they finish their commitments and go to the next show in West Hampstead that very night. He goes on to have another seizure only 25 minutes into this set, and this was considered his most violent seizure that he had had to date. He had two seizures in one day. That, that is honestly... That is wild to me. I mean, clearly his meds weren't helping him, but I think at this point he was just very defeated about everything. His mental health was just so deteriorating even more and more and more at this point. I'm sure the seizures were making his mental health a lot worse physically, like with his brain chemistry. But yeah, I mean, it just was not something that he wanted to deal with anymore. On April 6, 1980, he attempted suicide for the first time. He overdosed on his meds with a combination of alcohol. He was at home. Deborah was asleep in bed and he went in their bedroom and he said, you don't have to worry about me anymore, basically. And he collapsed right there on the floor. He was taken to Macclesfield Hospital again, where his stomach was pumped. He um, didn't want to deal with it anymore. And he did not want to have that pressure on the people that he cared about as well, because his seizures not only affected himself, but it affected everyone else around him. It affected his bandmates. It affected probably Tony Wilson and Rob and Deborah and everybody. Like, it affected everyone that cared about him. And he didn't want to suffer with this anymore. He was done with life and he couldn't handle it anymore. He survived this attempted suicide. And the following day, the band was set to perform at Derby Hall. Ian was way too ill to perform because obviously he had just OD'd the night before. So they brought on replacement singers Alan Hempstall of the band The Crispy Ambulance and Simon Topping of the band A Certain Radio to perform in Ian's absence. The audience, though, was really not a fan that Ian wasn't there to sing and they started throwing stuff on stage and they started rioting. Like, it was so bad. Ian's final live performance with Joy Division was on May the 2nd, 1980 at the High Hall of Birmingham University. The band played their first and last performance of their song, Ceremony, and this would later be recorded by New Order and released as their first single later on. The final song that Ian would ever sing with the band on stage was Digital. That's kind of where it comes down from there. Unfortunately, around this time as well, after Ian's mental health issues and his affair, Deborah filed for a divorce from Ian after his affair became well known to her. And she was becoming more aware of the fact that 
Ian was not stopping his affair with Anique, and so she filed for divorce. Ian really didn't want a divorce from Deborah at all, which is kind of interesting because he was having this affair. His marriage was crumbling with Deborah. Even though he loved her, it was just this thing where the thought of a divorce, I think, was just too much for him. On May 17th, he phoned Bernard telling him that he wanted to see Deborah and speak to her about the divorce. It was at this point, too, because things were just becoming so tumultuous in the house that he was living with friends, he was living with his bandmates and with Rob and with his parents. He wasn't living at home anymore. So at this point in time, I believe Ian was with his parents that night and he mentioned to Bernard that he wanted to go back home and see Deborah and to talk about the divorce to see if he could talk her out of the divorce. It's also around this time I should mention that Joy Division was supposed to go on a big American tour coming up very soon at this point. This was something that was going to be huge for them to gain a big international audience. This was huge. And so Ian informed Bernard on the phone call that he would meet the rest of the band the next morning at Manchester Airport on their way for their American tour. So he said, I will be there. I just want to see Deborah and I'll meet you guys there tomorrow. So on that evening of May 17th, he did go back home to speak with Deborah. He asked her to not go through with the divorce proceedings. He begged her. He didn't want her to, to do it at all. I think the thought of it was just way too overwhelming to him to comprehend. She thought that maybe he would have changed his mind the following morning, and knowing that he had attempted suicide not long ago, and his anxieties just compounding everything, she was worried that he might go into an epileptic fit. So she offered to stay the night at home with him to keep him company. And so she's like, all right, I'm going to stay with you tonight. I'm worried about you. I just want to go to my parents' house to let them know of, of the situation. So, so she drove to her parents' house. She told them that she was going to be staying at home with Ian to look after him. And when she returned back home, Ian told her that he wanted to spend the night alone. He made her promise that she wouldn't return back home before he had taken his scheduled 10 a.m. train to Manchester to meet with the band. Like, he did not want her to be there. She took the baby and she left for her parents' house, leaving Ian alone like he wanted. Ian spent that evening watching the 1977 film Strozek. I don't think I said that right. Um, but he watched that movie and he listened to Iggy Pop's 1977 album, The Idiot. He just spent the night totally and utterly alone. He wrote letters to Deborah and to Anique. In these letters to Deborah, he declared his love for her, and he left the letter amongst the photos of their family. Obviously, these letters have not been revealed to the public, but just based on what Deborah said, you know, he was just declaring his love for her. So that morning on the 18th, Deborah returned home with the baby, and she went inside, and she found Ian dead. He had hung himself from the washing line in their kitchen. I would hope that it was quick and painless and he didn't have to suffer for too long because that is a horrible way to go. He was just hopeless and he felt lost in his world and had all these seizures that messed with his brain chemistry and that, I mean, how can you really honestly experience all of these factors compounding together that is so horrible to live that life. He didn't want to live it anymore. That's just unfortunately what it was. 
She recalled, though, that at first she thought he was still alive. She wasn't really sure, like, what was even happening. And then she realized that the washing line rope was around his neck, and she, she went into full panic mode at that point. Ian was only 23 when he died. He was young. He had a lot of life to live. Some notable things leading up to Ian's suicide becomes even more clear that he didn't want to go on anymore because the USA tour was making him feel very, very nervous. He was really uncertain of how the American audience would even understand his seizures. He was certain of the fact that they would make fun of him and that they would laugh at him and that they wouldn't be understanding of him because, you know, the British people understood what he was going through and so that wasn't an issue for him. But he was very uncertain with how America would perceive his seizures and perceive his appearance on stage and things like that where he was really insecure about it. He was also afraid of flying. He had a severe fear of flying to the point where he asked the band if they could go on this tour via ship, but they were like, no, we're not going on a boat. So he had to overcome his fear of flying for this show, which I'm sure he was not looking forward to at all. So with that, compounding his overwhelming anxiety of they're going to laugh at me, they're going to mock me, they won't understand me, and his anxieties and his insecurities, it just became a lot for him to deal with. Deborah apparently had also heard from Ian himself that Ian didn't want to live past his early 20s. He thought that his seizures would one day kill him and he didn't want to live past his early 20s. It's very unfortunate um, that he didn't get the proper help that he should have gotten at the time, but that is where, that is where we leave it. According to Tony Wilson's girlfriend, Lindsay Reed, Ian had told her shortly before his death that he couldn't perform anymore with the band due to his seizures. I guess he also thought that he couldn't even perform anymore because he was having worse and worse seizures all the time, so this is just another point. Ian had also made comment that he believed Closer was the band's pinnacle, that that was their best album, that was probably the best work that they would ever come out with. Ian was cremated and he was interned at Macclesfield Cemetery. His memorial stone read, Love Will Tear Us Apart, and unfortunately fucking scum of the earth someone some asshole stole his memorial stone in 2008 it, it still has never been found no one has been able to find his original stone so a replacement stone was made for him like what low-life person has nothing better to do in their life just to go ahead and steal someone's memorial stone i know that it's ian curtis's memorial stone but like what is wrong with people honestly no so after Ian's death, Closer was officially released. Like I mentioned, though, Closer was recorded between March 18th and the 30th, 1980, in Britannia Row Studios in Islington, London. While music critics were praising Martin Hannett's production of the album, again, Peter and Bernard were just not happy with the production of the album. Peter made a comment that said, I was like, head and hands, oh fucking hell, it's happening again, unknown pleasures number two. Martin had melted the guitar with his Marshall Time Waster, made it sound like somebody strangling a cat. I was so annoyed with him and went in and gave him a piece of my mind, but he just turned around and told me to fuck off. 
yeah, they were not happy at all with the production whatsoever. Bernard recalled Ian's mind during the recording of this album as such. While we were recording on Closer, Ian said to me that during this album he felt very strange because he felt that all his words were writing themselves. He also said that he had this terrible claustrophobic feeling that he was in a whirlpool and being pulled down drowning. Yeah, he was definitely depressed at the time. I would say he was depressed for a very long time, but it just kind of came out, especially during Closer. You can hear it in the lyrics for sure, which is what I was saying before. Like, you can hear in his voice and in the lyrics that he was just crying for help. It is very autobiographical, the lyrics, in some respects. It's great, though, that we do have his lyrics and his poetry because he was such an amazing lyricist. The album cover for Closer was designed by Merton Atkins and Peter Saville again. The album cover is a photograph of the Appiani family tomb in Genoa's monumental cemetery of Stalieno, where they were a noble Italian family from the 15th century. So this was a really, really cool image to use on the album, to be honest. After Ian's death, Saville was really worried over the reception of the album cover because it clearly depicted a funeral on it. And he was like, oh my god, Ian just died and we're putting out an album cover that has a funeral on it. But I don't think anyone really cared about that, to be honest. The album was released July 18th, 1980, a few days after what would have been Ian's 24th birthday. The album reached number two on the UK album charts and it was named NME's Album of the Year. Upon its release, Sound Magazines reviewed the album saying that it had dark notes of gothic rock. It really was a good stepping stone for 80s goth rock, kind of like Susie Sue and the Banshees and The Cure and other such bands like that. Melody Maker said it was probably some of the most irresistible dance music that they'll hear that year. And it's been cited over the years as being the band's best work. The non-album single Love Will Tear Us Apart sold over 160,000 copies when it was released before the album in June. And Love Will Tear Us Apart 100% is definitely their most popular song, at least in my opinion. The inspiration for the song came from Ian's crumbling marriage and his mental health problems. The song went on to be certified platinum. They first recorded the song in Pen9 Studios, but they re-recorded it in Strawberry Studios. Martin apparently wanted to keep mixing and remixing the song to get the most perfect version of the song as humanly possible. He knew that it was going to be a tune that would last forever and he wanted it to be right. While Ian didn't play the guitar necessarily, the band taught him how to strum a D chord on the song so that he could play the song live. Ian didn't usually play the guitar live. He initially played on Bernard's Shergold Masquerader guitar, but in September of 1979, he got his own guitar, which is the famous Vox Phantom 6 Special that had some built-in effects, kind of like knobs and stuff, used for in the studio and for live performances. I think this is one of the coolest guitars that I've ever seen. It's so unique. It's so different. It's very Ian Curtis. The music video for Level Terrace Apart was shot by the band themselves in April the 25th, 1980 as they rehearsed it at a studio in Manchester City Center. So that's where they recorded the song for the music video. And obviously, I think we know that the music video had such poor quality of video and the colors sometimes browned out at some points and it just didn't look that great. Obviously, they shot it themselves and I'm assuming they used their own money to fund this. And so 
of course the quality wouldn't be that great. This was the only promotional video that the band had ever done, and this was before Ian's suicide. So that's quite poignant, to be honest with you. So now I kind of want to get into a couple of miscellaneous facts that kind of tie in to the end of the podcast. Factory Records released a compilation album of Joy Division on July 11th, 1988 of some singles. It goes hand in hand with New Order's compilation album, which is called Substance. So both of the compilation albums were called Substance. The Joy Division compilation album went to number seven in the UK album charts. It had a lot of B-sides on it, it had non-album singles on it, a few samples, and their first EP, An Ideal for Living, was also featured on the compilation album. Going back to Ian's guitar for a second, Ian's guitar was sold at auction last year for over £160,000. After Ian's death, the guitar was taken on by Bernard for New Order, and it was used on a few of New Order songs, and then in the 90s, it was used by Johnny Marr when Johnny Marr and Bernard formed the band Electronica in the 90s. So Johnny Marr got to use Ian's guitar, and he had it for a while, but Johnny eventually gave it back to Bernard, and this is where Bernard gave the guitar to Ian's daughter Natalie when she came of age in 2002. It remained with her and the family until she gave it to Bonham's Entertainment Memorabilia at this auction. The guitar was actually put up on display very recently at the Factory Records Museum exhibit in Manchester. So in 2015, the last bit of information that I found, Ian's home that I mentioned before, his home with Deborah and Macclesfield, it was thought to be set up to be a historical site by a super fan who wanted to buy the house. He thought that this house just shouldn't be sold to anybody. It shouldn't be on the market. It should be turned into a museum. An Indiegogo campaign was put up to raise the £150,000 price that was needed to buy the house and turn it into a museum. But unfortunately, the campaign didn't reach the goal price. After learning of the failure of the campaign, it was bought by a musician and businessman who helped foot the rest of the money to secure Ian's house, and it's in his possession. And he is going to turn it into a museum. There hasn't been anything yet that I found where they're actually doing anything with it just yet, but it's in his possession. A lot of people are kind of unsure about whether or not this is even a good idea. Some of the bandmates as well just don't want it to be like a shrine to glorify Ian's suicide because that's where he killed himself. This man that bought the house is definitely aware of that and he wants to he wants to turn the house into a museum in the most tasteful and respectful manners possible and so I'm curious to see what's going to happen over the next few years if they really are going to turn it into a museum but that is the end of my Joy Division podcast. I was going to talk about New Order in this podcast but there is so much vast facts and information on New Order that I'm just going to talk about it in another episode. So that's going to be up and coming next Wednesday. We're going to be talking about New Order then, but I hope that you guys have learned something new that you never learned about before. One thing that we can take away from Joy Division and Ian Curtis is that while Ian didn't live very long and they only put out two albums, what we can take away from it is they are one of the most influential bands of all time. They're very iconic, and their music will live on forever. So thank you guys for listening. I hope you have a great day, and I'll see you guys next time.
Bye, guys.